Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Panic buying became commonplace around the world in the early stages of the pandemic. It's now back in Britain. But what is the underlying behavioral science that fuels this phenomenon? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show. What do old footprints in New Mexico reveal about the very first Americans? It's really an order of magnitude more exciting than the other evidence we've been able to publish so far because it is the oldest human footprint that we have from the Americas. And Anil Seth, a neuroscientist, takes us on an exploration of consciousness. Even very basic psychology experiments are in some sense manipulating consciousness, but there are more direct and dramatic ways to intervene in consciousness and and see what happens. And keep listening for a chance to win your copy of Professor Seth's new book. But first... Petrol stations are running dry in Britain after there weren't enough drivers to transport the fuel. The government said, don't panic. And millions of people went on to do just that. The fuel crisis in the UK, gas pumps there running dry. Long lines at the few stations that still have fuel tonight. They say panic Britons have been swarming petrol stations, fearing a fuel shortage. But right now, there's no actual fuel shortage. There is a shortage of truck drivers. The soldiers panic could be drafted in to drive petrol tankers after three days of panic buying, coupled with a shortage of drivers, has caused some pumps to run dry. While on a hunt for fuel last weekend, as his fuel gauge hit almost zero, my producer Jason, with Babbage always on his mind, couldn't help but wonder what the science is behind panic buying. So we figured we'd find out. There are a range of behavioural factors that can lead to panic buying. Rachel McCloy is an associate professor in applied behavioural science at the University of Reading in Britain. The first is what we call herd behaviour, where we see what other people are doing and we follow along because that looks like it's the appropriate thing to be doing. The second is how we react to uncertainty and perceived scarcity of things in the world. That makes us feel quite negative and we try to do things to try and reduce that feeling of negativity. And the third is trying to maintain a feeling of control when we think things have got out of hand. So particularly in times of crisis and when we're worried about things, doing something, whatever that little thing can be, can help us regain a sense of control and make ourselves feel better about uncertain situations. 
over the last few days, motorists in Britain have been panic buying fuel, which is leading to further shortages. From a behavioural perspective, why did this happen? The first thing that happened here was that people heard on the media that there were petrol stations that didn't have supplies, so that had had to close. And that tends to trigger the idea that there is a supply at risk more broadly. And when people feel that, they start to feel uncertain about whether they're going to be able to access something that they use every day. So how does the panic buying for fuel in Britain compare to the crises that hit supermarkets globally when COVID-19 first hit the scenes? It's very similar in a lot of respects in that it was triggered by something where there, there wasn't in fact a shortage, but people started to perceive that there was one and that something that the panic buying actually makes worse and causes real shortages because of just-in-time deliveries to supermarkets. It's different as well, though, with fuel, because fuel is something that has much more wide-ranging impacts for people in terms of being able to get to work safely and for people's fear of not being able to respond in an emergency as well. So people are very tied to having that resource available to them. So it can trigger much worse panic buying, as we often see, than things like toilet roll and pasta being the the classic cases. So is panic buying a rational response or is it irrational? It can be both. The panic buying we see where people start buying things that they don't currently need because they've imagined that there is a scarcity somewhere because they've become scared having seen something on the telly. That's often an irrational response. It's going beyond what they require because they think there's a problem when there isn't one there. After a while, once panic buying has started to trigger shortages in and of itself, then to some extent it does become more rational for people to buy when they can because the supply in and of itself becomes more uncertain. So there's a mixture of rational buying and irrational buying. And with the fuel things we're seeing as well, there are some people out there who do literally need to fill the tank of their car. So they are just trying to fill up as normal. They're just caught in queues of lots of other people who don't need to fill up yet and are filling up regardless. Public authorities in the midst of crises like this love to tell people, do not panic. Does that make it worse? It can do. So it's the way in which you communicate. If you start to communicate a lot about the problem, that can make people more afraid and trigger these emotional responses that then trigger panic buying. Whereas things that focus on solutions and minimising the issues can help a lot in order to kind of reduce that. But just saying don't panic tends to highlight panicking as a possibility. So what should the public authorities do or what should companies do or other citizens? How can we prevent this from happening? It's interesting. It can depend on exactly what's happening with the panic buying and how that started out. Doing whatever you can to keep as many things looking as normal as possible, both on the media and elsewhere. So showing where there is fuel, showing you're minimising the number of places that are closed, perhaps spreading what's available can help. So companies can spread where their resources are going so everyone can see things turning up. That can help. And governments wanting to put a problem out there so that they can then solve the problem or communicating about a problem so you can solve it isn't always helpful. So you don't want to be the person who's trying to save Christmas, for example, because Christmas must be a threat before that happens. So keeping things business as normal, whereas when we start seeing things like 
the army being brought in to do things or limits being put on the amount of stuff that people are allowed to buy, that then starts to add to the fear and add to the sense of uncertainty. And and we should be reminding people what the solutions are rather than what the problem is. So using behavioural science, can you, Professor McCloy, fix the problem? Well, if I was trying to fix the problem with people panic buying fuel, I'd be endeavouring to make sure that as many filling stations as possible were receiving supply. So it might not be a full supply, but enough that places look like they're open. And I do that to... I've got to put the buzzer on you because what you've now just done is actually have a ground truth solution to the problem. What I need from you is a behavioral solution to the, to, to the crisis of the panic buying. But the reason for this is behavioral. If people see a large queue building up at one petrol station, because that's the only place that's been provided with fuel, it's the sight of the long queue that panics people. And it's the sight of a closed filling station that panics people. The more places that look like it's business as usual, the less people become panicked, the less there are these salient queues that we should be doing something, that everybody else is doing something. They're all queuing to buy petrol. So it sounds like a practical, physical solution, but it's based in the behavioural science. Okay, I'll buy that. Let's go back to COVID-19. The mitigation measures have been in place for a while, long enough for us perhaps to psychologically change We have developed new learned behaviours. So how long does it take for people's change behaviours to stick? A lot of that depends on the environment around them. So what's going on in what they can see in the world. So some behaviours, I think, have proved to be quite sticky because they've become almost mindless and habitual. Things like washing your hands more carefully when you're out and about and so on. Other behaviours are a lot more socially driven. So mask wearing, where we're losing mandates to do it, that started to shift a bit more because we're reliant on what other people do to give us the social cues as to what we should do in situations. So will these panic buying episodes cause behaviours to change? Panic buying is not a new phenomenon. It's happened for many, many reasons at many different times. And it doesn't always lead to long-term change. So we don't always find people hoarding, for example, to the same degree. But this has been a long-term period of instability. So we've become more used to doing what we can to manage our emotions here. So I imagine at the minute, people are a lot more susceptible to panic buying because we've been in this constant cycle of being a bit afraid of things and not really knowing what to do. That and British people clearly love to queue a little too much. Professor McCloy, thank you very much. Thank you. If you like our journalism, if you love our podcast, if you think that the host is amazing, take out a subscription to The Economist. And for more on the underlying causes of shortages, not just for fuel, but for other goods, read it in the Britain section of this week's issue. And discover why floating offshore farms may increase the production of seaweed and alleviate climate change in the science section. For your best introductory offer, and I mean best, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And I mean economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... 
Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Thousands of years ago, the first humans in America most likely crossed over the Bering Strait between what is now Siberia and Alaska. Ancient humans would have been able to cross during the last ice age because the low sea levels meant that it was dry land. But exactly when such crossing happened is unclear, and the latest evidence found in New Mexico seems to suggest it's even earlier than originally thought. Most of the fossil evidence that we have dates to around 16,000 years. Sally Reynolds is a hominin paleoecologist at Bournemouth University in Britain. Along with colleagues, she has just published the oldest footprint evidence from North America. There hasn't been any definitive evidence until quite recently of older occupations in North America. There's a recent site which was published in Mexico, a cave site which has stone tools in it which was dated to 30,000 years. That was deemed to be too old and people thought perhaps that the material held within the cave, the stone tools could have migrated down, putting them at older levels relative perhaps to where they started off when they were deposited. So tell me about your new findings. How do they change the equation? Well, these recent footprints were discovered, which when they were excavated into a bluff, so it was on a deflated surface, and then we followed the footprint trail into this slight hill, excavated into the hill, and at depth in a trench, we found two seed layers, one below the footprints and one above the footprints. The seed layers are what is so significant in this context because the seed layers being organic material make it possible for us to use radiocarbon dating to date the bottom seed layer is then the maximum date 23,000 and the top seed layer is the youngest date 21,000 so it's really the co-association of the footprints with these seed layers which is so different and is an order of magnitude more exciting than the other evidence we've been able to publish so far because it has a clear date. The date itself then is the oldest human footprints that we have from the Americas. So you're saying these footprints are between 21,000 and 23,000 years old. What can the nature of the footprints tell us about what life was like for these early occupants of the Americas? Well, the first thing to notice about the prints themselves is that they're unshod, which means these people did not habitually wear shoes. So when I look at those prints, the first thing I think of is, wow, the toes seem almost splayed. But that is actually what our feet would normally look like had we not been wearing shoes pretty much all our lives. Then the second thing we notice is that there's 
a range of ages represented. There's lots of children's prints, lots of teenagers' prints, and one or two adults that are present on this footprint surface. Now, that might seem strange. It might seem like we're suggesting that there's thousands of children around, but actually it has more to do with the energy and the movement patterns of, of younger children. So you can imagine two moms standing at a school gate having a chat after school and the adults tend to be quite conservative in their motion but the children will be running around the parents while they're talking leaving hundreds more footprints than you would get for the adults. And is there anything else these footprints might suggest about early human life in America? Well what's most important is that the human prints are often accompanied by the prints of extinct animals. So you have the Colombian mammoth, you have the dire wolf, you have camelids, you have the giant ground sloth. So what it tells us about humans is what humans are doing on the landscape is likely hunting or at least stalking some of these megafauna, trying to hunt these megafauna. And the interesting thing is that in certain cases, like with the sloth, it is clear that the sloth is being stalked by the humans and that the sloth doesn't like it and is rearing up on its hind limbs and sort of swiping at the humans as a self-defense mechanism. And that's important because it shows us that the sloth is very aware of humans as a predator, which is something that you don't get if you just had a skeleton of a sloth lying next to a skeleton of a human in a cave. It wouldn't necessarily give you the same amount of information and insight that we're able to get from some of these tracks. Dr. Reynolds, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here to speak to you. Thank you. Finally, are you really listening to my voice? Or is this, in fact, an auditory illusion, a phantom thought of the imagination in the sensory spheres of your skull? The state of consciousness still remains a mysterious part of our lives. Scientists and philosophers have long debated on the nature of conscious experience. Now, neuroscientists are seeking to answer the hard question of how it arose in the first place. Consciousness is what we lose when we fall into a dreamless sleep or go under general anesthesia. And it's what returns when we come round or wake up in the morning. It's any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. Anne Elseth is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. In his new book titled Being You, he seeks to explore the nature of consciousness. Our science correspondent Alok Jha spoke to him for Babbage. Consciousness is not the same thing, at least for me, it's not the same thing as intelligence or having language or anything like that. It's the presence of any kind of experience at all. You start your book with a description of anaesthesia, um, something that many of our listeners will have experienced themselves. So take us through that and what it tells us about how you start to understand and define consciousness. General anaesthesia is not only one of the most incredible medical inventions benefits to humankind over the last 100 or 200 years, it's a unique opportunity to understand consciousness because it's a manipulation that makes it completely go away and reliably, of course, reappear, or at least that's what we hope. So we can look at the brain and see what happens when consciousness is abolished and then returns. And then there was a, a couple of 
minor operations I had to go through, which required general anesthesia. And for the first time, I went into the surgery deliberately trying to pay attention to the experience or the non-experience of having general anesthesia. And there's one lesson that I really took from this, which was that it's totally different to falling asleep. The abolition of you, the abolition of awareness, is absolutely complete. You're gone, and then you're back, and no time at all seems to have passed. So anesthesia tells me when it comes to consciousness, it is something that can be turned off, and it is something that can return, and it depends in a very intimate way on the brain. What's going on in your brain during all of that? Many things are going on. This is one of the challenges of of something like anesthesia. It's such a dramatic intervention in the dynamics of the brain that it's quite challenging to figure out what part of the changes that anesthesia produces are related to the abolition of consciousness and what's happening just alongside that. One of the most compelling ideas is that anesthesia It doesn't just turn off a particular region like an on-off switch. It changes the way that different parts of the brain speak to each other. And we can actually now quantify the complexity of the response to a pulse of energy in the brain. And that gives a sense of how complicated the interactions between brain regions are. And that seems to be a really reliable signature of how conscious somebody is. When you say someone is conscious, are there levels of consciousness? Is someone more conscious than others? I like to think of consciousness as comprising three different dimensions, very broadly speaking. One would be level, roughly how conscious you are. And this would be the scale between complete absence of consciousness in something like general anesthesia or coma up to normal, everyday, waking, conscious uh, alertness. And so that's level. Then we also have conscious content. So when you are conscious, you're conscious of something. These are the thoughts, the emotions, the perceptions, the moods, all the different things that populate a conscious scene when we are conscious. And then finally is the experience of being a self, the experience of being me or being you. I want to understand what it means to be a person in this world, what it means to experience being a conscious individual. What kind of experiments can you do to alter consciousness? Any decent scientific experiment involves some kind of intervention. Even very basic psychology experiments are in some sense manipulating consciousness. You know, you see this image or you don't see this image. That's a manipulation of your conscious experience. There are more direct and dramatic ways to intervene in consciousness and and see what happens. But then there are other interventions that can be pharmacological as well, where we use chemical substances to change conscious states. And psychedelics actually are a very interesting branch of this. Psychedelics have also been quite uh, a taboo area of research for, for many decades. And fortunately now that too is changing. And from the perspective of consciousness, they're hugely interesting because you have a situation where you can give somebody a very small quantity of a substance that has a very well characterized local effect in the brain But then people's conscious experiences change in very fundamental and dramatic ways. They don't lose consciousness, but their whole conscious scene is altered and their experience of being a self is also often substantially altered too. We know at the highest level what happens to people's subjective experiences and we know at the lowest level what psychedelics do to individual neurons. It's the bit in the middle 
where the action is. And that's something I've been working on in collaboration with people in, in London, like Robin Cahart Harris, to try to figure out the brain dynamics that explain the characteristic features of the psychedelic state, like perceptual hallucinations and, and ego dissolution, this, this tendency of the sense of self to dissolve somehow. If we start to understand the mechanisms of consciousness, could we build artificial versions of it in machines or in software? And, and if we can, should we? The mission to develop artificial consciousness is ethically problematic from the beginning, not so much for what such machines might do to us, but once we build things that can have conscious experiences, we're introducing the potential for artificial suffering. And in the case of AI, the challenge here is we might not even be able to recognize it because we're not building machines that have human or animal faces so much. One of the lessons that I've been taking from my own work is that consciousness is much more closely tied to being alive than it is to being intelligent. And so we also sometimes think that as artificial intelligence gets smarter, which it undoubtedly is, there'll just come a point where the lights come on and it's also aware. We simply do not know whether consciousness depends on a system being made out of carbon or being made out of silicon. But what we do know is that those instances of consciousness that we see around us in the world, in other humans, in, in other animals, are very, very closely tied to keeping the bodies of organisms alive. So unless we start to build artificial intelligence systems that are in some real sense alive and that care about their own physiological persistence over time, I don't think we will be building really conscious machines. Anil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alok. It's been a real pleasure, as always. Thanks also to Alok Jha. Loyal Babbage listeners know that we occasionally give away a book on the show, and this week we have two copies of Professor Seth's book. To win, you need to reply to a question that Dr. Seth has posed to listeners, with answers that combine both analytical and creative rigor, as totally subjectively judged by me. The question is... I've been talking about the reasons why we should be wary of building conscious machines, or machines that seem to be conscious. But I'd like to ask listeners for the other side. What's a good reason why we should build a conscious machine or a machine that seems to be conscious? Okay, now to enter, please email your response by Wednesday, October 6th to podcasts at economist.com. Once again, podcasts at economist.com. And don't forget to tell them your consciousness sent you. Good luck. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hoskin and Abby Soye Oshindairo. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer, and the program's editor is Sandra Schmuelli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, somewhat conscious in London. This is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.